0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. We have an interview today. Yeah, we that ha- you did. I did. I did do it. We haven't had an interview in a while. That's correct. Uh, today we are talking to the Secretary of Education, John B. King Jr. And Secretary King joined the United States Department of Education as a principal senior advisor in 2015. And before that, he was the commissioner of education for the state of New York. But his career really began as an educator. He taught social studies in San Juan, Puerto Rico, and Boston, Massachusetts. And then earlier this year, we got an email from the Department of Education asking whether we might like to have him on the show. I just, I'm just i going to go ahead and thank the Department of Education for asking that, because this turned out to be quite lovely. Because the answer was immediately, uh-huh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was yes, but then it was also, okay, how would that work? Because like, we're not really... Uh, you know, an education policy podcast. Yeah. And that wouldn't, that wouldn't really be what our listeners would be up for. So what we did was we quickly decided on a topic that at that point was completely new to me. And I think also to Holly, it was the preliminary emancipation proclamation, I had never heard of this before. It was never mentioned in any of my history classes. It also didn't come up in any of our many previous episodes about slavery, the Civil War, and Reconstruction, of which we have a lot, until our recent episode on contraband camps that Holly researched, that actually was researched after this whole interview was scheduled.
1: Yes, but hadn't happened yet. It hadn't happened yet. And I think part of it is that uh, this particular document gets amassed into like a big kind of glossed over thing of, well, there was a lot of back and forth, you know, leading up to the emancipation proclamation and it kind of gets lumped in and it doesn't get a moment to stand on its own and be examined. Yeah. The Emancipation Proclamation, the final one uh, issued by Abraham Lincoln on January 1st of 1863, is, of course, way more familiar to most people. That's the one that declared that people enslaved in states that were rebelling against the Union, quote, are and
0: henceforward shall be free. That January 1st Emancipation Proclamation did not immediately free everyone who was enslaved in the United States. It only applied to the Confederate states that were in rebellion. But it did just set the stage for the eventual abolition of slavery in the entire United States. Another date that comes up pretty regularly is Juneteenth, which is June 19th of 1865, which is when the people of Galveston, Texas, Finally got the news that the Emancipation Proclamation had happened and at that point the war had also ended. Uh, so a lot of times that comes up as like the last, uh, like the last holdout of chattel slavery in the United States. Slavery was formally abolished nationwide with the adoption of the 13th Amendment on December 18th of 1865. So what we're talking about today is is all stuff from way before that. The preliminary Emancipation
1: Proclamation was basically a 100-day warning of the proclamation that was to come that following January. The document itself is one of Secretary King's particular interests. And while he was Commissioner of Education in New York, he took the document itself on a seven-city tour as part of an exhibition called First Step to Freedom. The exhibition started out at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture in New York City. And from there, as we said, it toured to seven other cities. Secretary King also co-authored the text that went along with that exhibition.
0: In the first part of our interview with him, we are going to talk about why Lincoln decided to basically warn the rebelling states of what was coming and how that document fit into the arc of how the Civil War progressed uh, from originally from the union point of view being more about retaining the union to eventually uh, from the union point of view being about abolishing slavery. So joining us today is Secretary of Education John B. King, Jr. Thank you so much for being on the show today.
2: Happy to do it.
0: So, uh, I have heard from so many folks on your staff that one of your passions is the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. And so on September 22nd, 1862, which was a hundred days before he issued the Emancipation Proclamation, President Abraham Lincoln issued this preliminary proclamation that said, among other things, that if the rebelling states did not return to the Union, their enslaved populations would be forever freed. So what led to President Lincoln basically warning the the rebelling states that this was going to happen?
2: Well, so, you know, in many ways, it was for Lincoln a matter of political strategy. Right to build uh, public will around the Emancipation Proclamation, he wanted to both convey that the South had had an opportunity uh, to return to the Union, and also build public understanding that this was a essential step um, in order to successfully prosecute the Civil War. Um, and interestingly, he he sort of timed. Issuing the preliminary emancipation proclamation for a moment when uh, the North was doing better in the Civil War, so the the date that it was issued is actually um, bound up with the uh, battle at Antietam, and it was the success there that allowed him to issue it because he had been warned by Secretary Seward back in July that if he issued the preliminary emancipation proclamation at a low moment in the conflict, it would seem. Like desperation, uh, but if he did it after a victory, it would seem like a a more confident maneuver done to give the South a chance to uh, return to the Union on, on the right terms or uh, to move forward to finish the war.
0: Was there any chance at all that that the rebelling states were going to rejoin the Union after this essentially threat?
2: I, no, I think this really was Lincoln as master politician, uh, figuring out what it would take to build public will. He also wanted realized the historical importance of the Emancipation Proclamation that in many ways it was a, a fulfillment of the promise of the Declaration of Independence a critical defining moment for the country and I think wanted to have the Emancipation Proclamation have the strongest possible um, foundation uh, because he, he recognized its importance.
0: So uh, part of this was, as you said, le- laying this legal groundwork for future emancipation. So what would have happened if these states had rejoined the Union in an effort to not have their slaves emancipated?
2: Well, interesting. Interestingly, in the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, there's language around the possibility that uh, there would be some sort of financial remuneration for um, the owners of slaves if the slave states returned. Um, that language does not appear in the um, in the January 1863 Emancipation Proclamation, and so Lincoln had a vision that. At least in theory, the 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 institution of slavery could have been on a kind of a path to disappearance, eliminated in the territories, sort of phased out in the um, states that had slavery in place. Um, But I but I think ultimately. Lincoln understood that this was a step that would ultimately change the nature of the war and make the war fundamentally um, not just about protecting the Union, but about ending the institution of slavery.
0: Oh, and that really leads really well into my next question, which is at the start of the war, several slave states had basically promised that they would secede if Lincoln was elected. And so then he was elected and they did secede. But from Lincoln's point of view, the war at the beginning was not really so much about slavery as it was about preserving the Union. And it was like the focus gradually became, it came around to the abolition of slavery as the war progressed. So where does the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation fit into this arc of, of moving from it being about preserving the Union to also being about Ending the institution of slavery?
2: You know, it's an interesting question and one that that really the scholars of Lincoln have debated. So there's one view that is that Lincoln always intended to uh, make progress towards the eventual abolition of slavery, um, but was a savvy and thoughtful politician, understood that the first step was to not have slavery expand into the into the territories Um, as the war began, saw the opportunity uh, to move towards emancipation and pursued the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation and the Emancipation Proclamation as, uh, as a tactic to satisfy his ultimate goal of the elimination of slavery. Um, So that's one view. Another view is that Lincoln was, most focused always on preservation of the union, and and would have uh, chosen that above all else. And you know, there's of course the, um, you know, the famous language from Lincoln, where where he tries to make that make the point that he would um, preserve the union above all else, whether that was with or without the institution of slavery. Um, so one view is that that was. A genuine articulation of his view, and, and, and another view would be that it was a political strategy, um, and that he realized he had to build public will over time. And, you know, in, in some of Lincoln's writing, you hear him talking about the idea that public will is essential to accomplishing things that are hard, and that you need to bring the public along with you.
0: So I love this idea of the president needing to bring the public along with him as he and the nation were gradually moving toward abolishing slavery. That idea has been present in so, so many social changes we have talked about on the show before. Like we've talked about some really difficult times in the United States where a change needed to be made and it took a while to bring the people along to be more on board with the change. So it's really interesting to talk about this document as one piece of a more gradual attempt to to change the public view uh, to the idea that abolishing slavery was really something that needed to happen entirely.
1: It is. It's, uh, you know, we often think about this period, I think, particularly in history, uh, in a way where, It it gets taught in a very black and white way, and I don't mean that to be punny, but it's like, this happened, and then everybody got it, and then this happened, and everybody – and it's like, no, 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 no. no. It was a slope or (laughs) – like, none of these steps were immediate. They were not, you know, like a door opening or closing. It was all, like, gradual. You really had to, like, coax it through its processes. And then
0: continue the coaxing (laughs) for more than a century afterwards. So – Uh, We are going to take a brief break for a word from a sponsor before we get back to talking to Secretary King.
1: It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. Learn more at how slash papertarian
3: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: So next up in Tracy's talk with Secretary King, they're going to talk about the language of the document, which is a lot more formal and legal than the Lincoln-era documents that a
0: lot of U.S. school kids wind up memorizing for class. It does not at all sound like four score and seven years ago. (laughs) not, Not remotely. One of the things that I think a lot of people remember most about Lincoln from their just regular history classes is the, Getty, the Gettysburg Address. And that is an address that you would probably describe as being beautifully written. It has this almost poetic flowing language. And this document does not really have that. It is a lot more formal and legal in its tone. Can you talk about that difference a little bit?
2: Sure, well, you know, Lincoln was a lawyer, and he thought about this as a um, as a legal action that would need to be legally defensible, and viewed the Emancipation Proclamation as an exercise of um, sort of presidential war powers, and so uh, the document is in very legalistic prose and intentionally so. And he took great care in personally authoring uh, the document and the version of the preliminary emancipation proclamation that um, the New York State Library has, um, the original in Lincoln's own hand, even has uh, cut and pasted sections from the Confiscation Act's uh Where you can see that he literally cut them out and pasted them, and there's even a spot where you can see uh, Lincoln's thumbprint in glue um, on the document um, as he cut and pasted into it. So this was this was for Lincoln a very careful step, and it's you know I think one of the powerful things as a teacher um, as you're teaching these documents is to see the complexity of the role of historic. Um, figures, you know, that Lincoln was president making political judgments, thinking about um, his legacy, thinking about the importance of these events in the grand sweep of, of history, their significance for the country. He, he wanted to make sure that that emancipation succeeded. He wanted to make sure he built public support, uh, that he had a strong legal position, and that he could navigate to emancipation uh, while preserving uh, the role of the border states that were members of the Union. So, this was all very, very carefully executed by, by Lincoln.
0: The first time that I actually read this, it was a transcript of the document because I have a very hard time with historical handwriting. And I didn't realize until much later that those sections of the previous acts were literally cut out and pasted to the document. And that quickly became one of my favorite things about it was that he he cut it out and pasted it on there so it would be exactly the word for word and then also not have to rewrite the whole thing.
2: Yeah, yeah, old fashioned before, mean, before, uh, long before the, the cutting and pasting of, of Microsoft Word.
0: Yep. Uh, so there is, there's one copy of this document that's in the president's own handwriting. What happened to that physical copy once he signed
2: it? Well, so, you know, later the, the document was, um, Donated to a commission that was set up for the care of soldiers, the medical care of soldiers, and that commission then held a auction, and an abolitionist won the documented an auction. He bought a lot of tickets in the auction and or raffle, and then the New York State Legislature uh, allocated funding to buy. document from him and that's how it came to be in the possession of New York State and uh, New York state has periodically shared the document with the public. And when I was State commissioner in New York, I was privileged to be a part of an effort where we uh, developed an exhibit with the preliminary emancipation proclamation and also a speech that uh, Dr. King gave on the hundredth uh, anniversary of the preliminary emancipation proclamation. And we built an exhibit for kids um, with the two documents and, uh, took it all around the state and it was during the time that the Lincoln movie was coming out and there was a lot of interest and, and we had uh, thousands of, of people and um, thousands of uh, students from schools all over the state come to see this exhibit and come to see the document and you could really see people's uh, appreciation for um, Lincoln in their enthusiasm just, just to stand in the same space as as this document.
0: So I, I don't know if this is the case now. When I, when I was studying, you know, K through 12 American history, this was in the late 1980s, early 1990s. And this whole idea that there was a preliminary emancipation proclamation and that there was a process of setting legal foundations in order to abolish the institution of slavery, that was skipped completely over. And it, it seemed more like, the Emancipation Proclamation just kind of appeared uh, out of whole cloth, and and then the slaves were free. And that's it's that's not at all what happened. Why do you think so much of that process is omitted from so many history lessons about the Civil War and the abolition of slavery?
2: Well, you know, I think as a, as a country, um, you know, we so celebrate Lincoln's legacy and the notion of of Lincoln as the emancipator, um, which is true and right. But there's also nuance behind that. And, you know, one of the things I tried to do when I taught in high school history and also high school civics was to try to have students get a sense of the complexity of um politics throughout our history. You know, it's one of the great things about the Hamilton musical is I think it's given a generation of Americans a better understanding that these um, figures in history aren't just two-dimensional characters that appear in our currency, that they're complicated people operating in complicated times, making political judgments, uh, making very strategic decisions and you know from my perspective it makes um, Abraham Lincoln even more heroic because you understand that 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 he had to have a carefully plotted legal strategy a carefully plotted political strategy uh to accomplish um, emancipation and and ultimately to win the civil war um, yeah, it's one of the nice things about uh some of the recent um books and study on uh, Lyndon Johnson and the path to the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. Um, you know, these important achievements are um, the product not of a sudden inspiration but rather careful execution by um, very capable politicians and sometimes the word politician is put in a negative light, but Abraham Lincoln was a very, very capable politician.
0: So before we get to the end of our interview, we're going to stop for one more brief word from a sponsor. And after we hear from that sponsor, we are going to talk about why this particular document is so personally important to Secretary King. So let's get to the end of the interview. Secretary King is going to talk about the document's personal importance to him and as also how it fits into the greater arc of progress toward racial equality in the United States. So every person I spoke with while arranging this interview with you talked about this document being really important to you. So, what does this document specifically mean to you, and why is why is it the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation in particular that has so captivated you?
2: You know, I think for me, it's that it it's a reflection of um, both the ways in which the United States has fallen short of the founding values. You know that 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 we have to acknowledge that uh, the United States began very much with the institution of slavery as fundamental to how the country worked. And there was a real tension between the institution of slavery and the promise of the declaration of independence and the, and the, and the notion, um, the notion that all men are created equal. And so there was this gap and We all, as Americans, need to appreciate that complexity of our history around issues of race. Um, At the same time, the document also illustrates um, something the president often talks about, that the trajectory of America is towards greater equality, greater opportunity uh, over time. And so this period, the Civil War and Reconstruction, are really a second birth of the United States. You know, when you look at the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments, which were really products of the Civil War and Reconstruction, um, they expanded the definition of American equality and American democracy. And this document was very much a part of that journey. And then the last piece is this document is also about the complexity of government, the importance of leaders um, figuring out how to bring the public along on things that are hard, uh, the importance of um, leaders having a good political strategy, a good legal strategy, um, as well as uh, moral higher purpose. And uh, Lincoln really combined all of those things. And you see that very much in this document and the, and the eventual January Emancipation Proclamation, January 1863.
0: So is there anything else about this document or its history that you really think that listeners to our show should know?
2: Hmm. Um, you know, I, I, the one thing I would say is just as, speaking as a teacher, I just think there's so much power in students engaging with primary source documents. And it's one thing to read, a, you know, a textbook and what the textbook might say, but it's another um, to delve into a historical document and really appreciate uh, what the author was trying to accomplish, the choices the author made. Um, you can imagine a, a powerful unit comprised of this preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, the uh, Emancipation Proclamation of January 1863, the Gettysburg Address, uh, the Second Inaugural Address, the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments, you know, just study through those powerful historical texts and it can uh, be a way to inspire students, uh, both about um, literacy and about social studies. Uh, It also can be a way to help students see um, the nuances in our history
0: Thank you so much for taking the time to to speak with us today It was a pleasure to have you on the show
2: Thanks, it's fun to talk with you and thanks for what you do uh, making sure folks are are learning about our history
1: Bravo Tracy Thank you (laughs) And thank you so much to Secretary King.
0: Yes, incredibly. Just that that was a, a pleasure of a conversation to have. Thank you so much to the folks at the Department of Education who got in touch with us and helped arrange this interview in the first place. Uh, We have photos on our on our website where you can get a glimpse of what this document looks like, complete with the cut and pasted parts of other uh, of other acts that were pasted on there. We will also link to more information about it, including the full text for people who want to read the whole thing. You got some listener mail we can enjoy. I do. I'm actually going to read two pieces of listener mail that are short and are related to each other. And they are uh, along the same theme of several things that we heard about following our butter Versus margarine podcast. And the first is from Goldie. And Goldie said, I just listened to the butter and margarine podcast and I have a question. In your research, did you come across any requested or granted exceptions to margarine, but margarine bans for religious or health reasons? I was raised in a kosher home. And if we didn't have margarine, we would have been unable to have mashed potatoes with our meat meals, among other things. By the way, I love your podcast. Thanks. Thank you. Yours, Goldie. Then the other is from Jason and Jason says, I really enjoy this episode, except for the part about pink margarine, which seems horrendous. I'm chuckling because I know that Holly disagrees with the <laughs> idea that pink margarine is horrendous. Uh, to return to the letter, Jason says, while I am not Jewish, I believe there is a Judaic thread to this story. Margarine opened a whole new chapter for kosher cooks as it was not dairy, but could be used in a recipe as if it was a butter substitute. When not made from animal fats or containing milk, milk salads. Here's some background. And then he has a link to an article. The article is actually really fascinating because it is an article about uh, one year when there was a shortage of kosher margarine. And it threatened to ruin a lot of Passover meals oh. <laughs> because there was no kosher for Passover margarine available in stores. This is so interesting. Yeah. Uh, so, number one, it did not. It not what Goldie asked about, what Jason asked uh, talked about. Neither of those things came up in the research at all. Uh, in part because a lot of the time we were talking about was when margarine was made from beef tallow and Dairy, like a little bit right. of milk for flavor. So that would not have been considered kosher. It was much later in margarine's history that like kosher margarines did come out that would have been appropriate for use uh, in kosher cooking. So I started looking into this. Really super interesting. Uh, the first kosher margarine was introduced in Europe in 1904, but for the most part, Uh, For a few years, kosher margarines were mostly being made locally in businesses, uh, in like towns and communities that had a large Jewish population. So they were uh, made in much smaller batches and not so much available in the United States. In the United States, the debut of uh, margarine into kosher cooking was in 1911 with the introduction of Crisco. Mm. We don't really think of Crisco as margarine, or I didn't until I looked into this. Crisco, even though it is advertised as vegetable shortening, is basically a, a greasy white margarine. Although sometimes it's yellow. Sometimes it's yellow. They make it yellow to look like butter. So I guess Here. that would there have made go. sense
1: and it never connected for me it either. Didn't,
0: yeah, it didn't connect to me at all. Uh, so that really changed a lot of uh, Jewish cooks, uh, in terms of, of what they could make. Um, so it's, it's, that was really when, uh, when things that were more butter like started being introduced um into more jewish cooking and it's one of those things where uh when i started looking into this uh, a lot of people uh sort of talked about it it was like sort of taken for granted that like that had always been the way that that a kosher home worked even though it was only in 1911 or or after that margarine was introduced into jewish cooking so that's fascinating. Uh, I do not think I started looking specifically to try to find if there were um, like religious in- exemptions to margarine bans. Uh, and it seems like, at least from what I could gather, that by that point, the law had progressed so that at most places that were banning margarine were only banning yellow margarine. So you could still get margarine can be yellow, right? So there wouldn't really have needed to be a, an, an exemption example. because you could still get it. It just wasn't yellow. So thank you to all the folks that wrote in. We got we got um, I would say four or five other emails that were about uh, margarine in Jewish cooking. Yeah, uh, many of the folks I know who who are Jewish don't really keep kosher uh, kitchens, and, and so it, didn't, it did not ever occur to me at all. Yeah me either i you know and i i will certainly confess what i know about
1: kosher cooking is is very nominal uh, but yeah, it never would have
0: even crossed my mind. Yep. So thanks. Thanks to all the folks who wrote us in with that other perspective. Yeah. If you would like to write to us, we're at history podcast at com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash mist in history and our t- on Twitter at mist in history. Our Tumblr is mist in history. com, And we are also on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash mist in history. Our Instagram. Missed in History, it's all the things except for our email address are Missed in History. If you would like to learn more about what we talked about today, come to our parent company's website. It is HowStuffWorks.com. You'll find lots of information about anything your heart desires. You can also come to our website, MissedInHistory.com, and you will find show notes for all the episodes Holly and I have worked on. In the show notes, we will put uh, links about... The Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, where you can see pictures of it in the full text and all that. Uh, we also have an archive of every episode that Holly and I have ever, ever done. Uh, and one more time before we go, I want to thank Secretary King and the staff at the Department of Education who lined up this whole interview because it was great. You can do all of these things and so much more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com.
3: Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner.
0: Oh my gosh,
3: congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your
2: podcasts. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine. Hosted by me, Danielle Robay. And me, Simone Boyce.